0: Cinco, cuatro, 3, dos, uno. Welcome to another episode of The Discursive Power of Rock en Español and The Desire for Democracy. I am Jorge Leal, historian at UC Riverside. In our first episodes, we did a general overview of how rock en español gained popularity throughout Latin America and within Latinx communities in the United States. For this episode, Dr. Citlali Sosa-Ridell professor at Cal State San Marcos, will be giving us a much more in-depth explanation of why rock and Espanol became such an important and also persecuted music for political and societal dissents in Latin America. In addition, we will hear another great song by the students of Miramonte Elementary School in South Los Angeles. So,
1: let's listen in. I'm Sitla Aliso Cerrado, and I'm your host, in this podcast, I want to talk about how rock and español became a creative space in Latin America. Why specifically did it become that way, and what was the background of how it was created in Latin America? This podcast examines specifically Argentina, Mexico, and Chile from the nineteen seventies to the nineteen eighties to find out exactly why rock music became a space of creativity against the dictatorships. And also, I want to suggest even that in the nineteen sixties, there's the the precursor um, for thinking about how rock and uh, hippie culture became synonymous with a subversive element in their cultures. So I want to point out that one of the reasons why rock en español was such a source of contention in Latin America was that it was often associated with the United States. Now, this is also clear for rock music in English, but also rock en español, even if transformed into Spanish, it still had the association of the United States. And the United States, in the 1960s and in the 1970s, was associated with the peace movement, the civil rights movement, environmental movements, uh, developing feminism and queer rights movements, uh, as well as the steps to legalize uh, contraception and abortion, divorce, homosexuality, and all of these things frightened the conservative groups of Latin America who saw these kinds of greater freedoms as, in the United States as being uh, a challenge to the political conservatives and as more about self-fulfillment in a very individualistic and selfish way rather than in the way that in the United States we understand these as personal fulfillment and independence, right? I mean, of course, there are challenges in in the conservative world here in the United States as well. Uh, Conservatives in Latin America saw this as a challenge to the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church's authority. And yet many of the more younger college-educated liberals uh, were not necessarily as concerned or uh, very much were supportive of these ideas because they too increasingly questioned the traditional role of marriage in Latin American society and the nuclear family and they too were looking for alternative philosophies and religions and, and spirituality much in the ways that you saw in the United States. They also resented the hierarchical structure of the Catholic Church And they liked the idea of this sense of individual liberation and social emancipation. And uh, many of the conservatives in Mexico, for example, blamed uh, what they saw as the destruction of the family on things like uh, higher divorce rates and things like that. Uh, They blamed things like the sexual revolution and birth control and changing ideas about gender, right, and specifically more women's freedom. Um, They also blamed things like coeducational schooling and of course rock and roll music, right. Um, The sexuality of both men and women were a cause for concern in the more conservative world um, in, in Mexico because uh, they were looking at rock music as teaching women about uh, sexual freedom and sexual liberation and and changing clothing styles that were you know, The miniskirt, right, was viewed as this example of uh, sexual Liberation, but in a negative light, right? And then for men there was uh, a lot of conservative concerns about how they had long hair in the rock and roll culture and that, that was associated with like homosexuality and thus they were not, they had kind of lost the sense of masculinity. So there was a general kind of conservative fear that men had become less masculine, women had become less feminine. And, in, and then in this way, the family was being destroyed. Another reason that in Latin America, there was a conservative kind of hatred for rock music uh, in general and rock en español in particular was that it was uh, rockers were associated with as I mentioned homosexuality uh, and they were even policed very explicitly and and long hair was also associated with like this sense of not only political subversion but like subversion to like the general culture. It was seen as, long hair was seen as a way to figure out who was part of this subversive element. And so it became dangerous for people to have long hair, and so then of course young people saw that as a space that they should fight, right, over this ability to have long hair. I mean, those who were politically motivated or frustrated with the hierarchies of society or or the very strict gender roles, not everyone of course. America there was a general panic about the idea of the family of masculinity and also the fading role of patriarchal authority so that the father didn't necessarily have the same kind of control in their minds over their sons and daughters who had been transforming gender roles, gender relationships, sexual mores. uh, And so throughout the world really in the 1960s and 1970s there was this Transnational youth counterculture that we know of very well in the United States, but it was very much at odds with a lot of conservative spaces who uh, placed value on things like uh, sobriety, and they viewed drugs as being what was leading to all of these changes. Uh, they highlighted this need for respectability, and these youth countercultures uh, directly challenged these ideas of respectability politics and of um, sobriety and of traditional religion and hierarchical religion and of traditional masculinity and femininity. Um, And so they were really, in many ways, trying to challenge the status quo. And the conservative world saw that explicitly as an attack. Uh, on the status quo, and they were frustrated, and they blamed rock music in general. So, uh, and in in Argentina, for example, right wing sectors linked youth to drug abuse, and and uh, and that made them open to becoming left wing subversives, and that they were deviants, and so that they had to be looked at in a specifically suspicious way, and. Keep in mind too that there were changing legislations surrounding narcotics uh, in in these countries in Latin America, and that also meant that there was greater fears about these changing um, policing of narcotics. And so, the police and the conservatives and the military argued that rockers and political militants were, in their minds challenging, not just gender roles, but in this way, the entire nation, right? Because the gender roles were seen as the bedrock of the family and the family was the bedrock of the nation. Uh, so what began as rock culture in Latin America by young, you know, group of bohemian men, young men, um, really evolved into a much larger uh, community event, right? Right. So that things like the miniskirt um, and for women and long hair for men ultimately became this transformational space, right? Where unconventional clothing then became a way for people to create an identity and that identity uh, became associated with a love for uh, rock and espanol or rock music and they would meet together in these spaces of music and write music together or listen to music together and so from there communities were developed and thus this community development created the possibility of multiple spaces for challenging uh, you know, the, the hierarchy of society, the status quo, but also the developing military dictatorships. Uh, in Argentina, for example, young men there too, much like Mexico, were also uh, criticized and harassed and policed and uh, detained for having long hair. And many of the ways in which they were talked about by the, in the newspapers and by letters written in uh, was that they, were, um, that they were gay, right? So they were very clear homophobic ideas uh, and intense, that, that would lead to you know, months of intense policing and civilian raids uh, and in even in lifestyle magazines, ones that weren't necessarily politically motivated, they would talk about how the hippies in Argentina uh, were also, you know, they're kind of use the same terms that were used in the United States, such as hippies, uh, also used in Mexico, um, but they would also call them rockers, um, and they would complain very explicitly about how the long-haired hippies and rockers were a, a threat to Argentinian society because of their alleged homosexuality and that they were also associated with uh, drugs specifically in one of the letters is mentioned their smoking of marijuana uh, and this is repeatedly brought up we see this in, the, in these letters written to this lifestyle magazine called Villas, um, about how men having long hair meant that they was leading them into dressing like women, they called them cross-dressers, and that this non-traditional clothing was causing all kinds of problems in the larger society and and changing gender relations in a way that was um, kind of causing chaos everywhere and challenging the clear-cut gender roles of the past in which women had been uh, staying at home and men had been the breadwinner. And this was actually happening for a number of reasons in society that weren't necessarily related to the rise of rock music. And there were a lot of demands in the 1960s for uh, young women from both the middle and working classes to change uh, and to work in the workforce because of uh, pressure, monetary pressure, but also because there were they were remaining longer in the educational system and this made it possible for them to become part of the labor market and then when they became part of the labor market they were able to also be a part of the leisure society right because they could afford to do so and in this way young people were able to start experimenting with a lot of new uh, society like ways of interacting with each other right so there were the development of new uh, courtship conventions or you know dating conventions uh, there was much more public acceptance of premarital sex and marrying at older ages right rather than uh, very young right 17 18 right so the the, the age limit could be moved back uh, and we could and there what we see in this era is a collective yearning for change among younger people that wasn't necessarily politically motivated, uh, but that did challenge earlier forms of, of gender roles, but also patriarchal power in which the fathers of these families could control their young their, you know, their young men and women of their children. Right? And so both young men and young women were challenging their parental, their father's authority. And by changing the way that they engaged in leisure culture, in dating rituals, uh, and think about leisure culture as things like dancing or going to the movies or or uh, driving around, cruising, right? Things like this. Parties, uh, hanging out in uh, situations that involved both men and women, right? Before this, you had a lot of, of expectation that women could only spend time with women and without um, any kind of... Uh, you know, somebody watching them right either they're a parent figure or uh, there was a lot of more cloistering of women especially among the elite but in this period we see with the development of like leisure culture in Latin America that uh, women and men are able to interact in more um, you know in public right together without any but anybody really watching them and speaking of women in rock and espanol In this episode, we would like to showcase the performance of the students in the music program at the Miramonte School in South Los Angeles. They are young and very talented. Here they are with their own rendition of Julieta Venegas' Eres Para Mi. Let's check this out.
2: el viento, eres para mí. Lo oigo todo el tiempo, eres para mí. Me lo dicho el viento, eres para mí. La sombra que pasa, la luz que me abraza tus ojos mirándome. La calle que canta su canto de diario, el mundo moviéndose. Para mí. Me lo ha dicho el viento, eres para mí. Lo oigo todo el tiempo, eres para mí. Me lo ha dicho el viento, eres para mí. El espejo que da su reflejo en todo lo pinta tal como es. Mi cuerpo que no tiene peso si escucho tu voz llamándome.
1: So rock music becomes a space for young people to challenge their parents, earlier identities, and increasingly as society becomes more constricted by the growing uh, authoritarianism, rock music also becomes a place for them to challenge uh, authoritarianism in their political system, this kind of general authoritarian culture in Latin America. Between 1976 and 1983, Argentina uh, was part of this uh, full development of a phenomenon known as rock nacional or national rock. Rock nacional was an important space for young people to counter the culture of the military dictatorship uh, that was developing. and And it's an interesting thing that rock en español in Argentina develops from. Uh, the Falkland Islands Malvinas War, and because it was against England, there is a a, a a lockdown on English language rock, and so Rock Nacional comes out of that, uh, and they're now singing in Spanish in a way that is in line with the military dictatorship's um, censorship, right? And in an ironic way, even as there's this censorship of English rock, the rise of the Spanish rock or national rock or rock nacional, or uh, as we're calling it in the podcast as well, rock en español. Uh, there's also this, it becomes then too another space for creating a counter national culture in which they're bringing the transnationalness of, of like rock music that's happening throughout the world and it's challenging uh, authoritarianism and gender roles and and uh, patriarchal power, uh, and they're transforming it into a very Latin American context and talking specifically about what they are dealing with in their respective countries. Now, in Rock en Español, the musicians become the leaders and with the lyrics of their song they're able to give voice to young people and give them an alternative voice to the dictatorship especially under uh, strict censorship rules that were oftentimes very unclear and required like a constant negotiation with uh, with, uh, the difficult times for young people under the dictatorship was also because the bulk of the repression um, and the violence against people was largely against the youth. Uh, 67% of the youth Uh, of the disappeared were young people between the ages of 18 and 30 and in Argentina, I mean in Argentina right, and and in Argentina for example here too, uh, youth as a category became a very suspicious category and they felt that they constantly were in a state of having to prove themselves as innocent. There was an assumption of guilt so there was little space in society for them to have any kind of political role or political dissent uh, there wasn't any space for student movements or political youth movements and so Rock and Español became the space for them. Uh, in the period of from 1976 to 1977, we're going back, I'm going to go back here by period, uh, there were a great deal of rock concerts in the Luna Park area in um, Buenos Aires. Well Luna Park was a stadium but in, in, in the neighborhood of in the Tulsa like community right and it was the biggest covered stadium in the country of Buenos in, in Argentina, and it had a capacity of 15,000 people. And anywhere from one or two a month, uh, there were events held once or twice a month. And these concerts uh, became a space for people to get together. Right? And there were also, too, of course, many smaller spaces around the city of Buenos Aires, in which people joined together and listened to rock music. Now, because the dictatorship believed that this broken Espanol movement, like the English one, was linked to this idea of subversiveness, the military dictatorship explicitly made statements in their newspapers saying that the young people were doing drugs and they were engaging in extreme um, exaltation of the senses. So they were like, it, you know experiencing things uh, in a heavy, in a serious way. Um, and they were talking about how they were promiscuous and that all of these things made them into potential uh, guerreros or fighters, right? Or people who would fight against the government. And so then they, uh, the military dictatorship begin a comp- campaign against these concerts. Uh, they would do things like throw tear gas bombs or stink bombs into the theaters in which the concerts were being held. And they even uh, began escalating to the point of rounding up people by the hundreds and detaining them for police checks before and after every concert. And ultimately, the owners of the concert halls were advised by the dictatorship not to even let anybody have any rock concerts. So by 1977, a number of bands had actually broken up and musicians were either forced to stop playing music or or go abroad and leave the country in order to uh, play music, right, or, or feel safe. There was really any uh, an impossibility of putting together any concerts until 1979, when there was a new leadership uh, in the military um, junta, or the dictatorship. And there was a new wave of uh, Roque español leadership, too, right, with the Argentinian bands um, Almendra and Cerújirán, which was led by Charlie Garcia. Uh, rock and Espanol concerts begin again, and the repression also uh, grew in size as well. Even as the rock concerts were able to fill bigger stadiums, uh, for example, if they filled the stadium called Palermo, with 60,000 people, um, but by 1981, Argentinian military hardliners were uh, gearing up for the fight against the English um, with the Malvinas and the Falkland Islands War. And then they uh, really cracked down right, on, on any kind of English rock. And so again, this really um, leads to a flowering of Spanish-language rock here. Now, according to historian Eric Zolov, it's an important thing that historians do to challenge the way that we think of of Mexico in this in this similar time period. Now, we we do understand like the PRI or the PRI as a kind of dictatorship, right? But because it has this strange uh, relationship to United States and to didn't have like a military dictatorship in the way that we look at, say, the Southern Cone. But that didn't mean that they weren't engaging in their own dirty war, right? Or in this case, a number of dirty wars. So I want us to think now about about Mexico here because they did have a number of dark episodes of violence, both in the cities and in the countryside. but But the one we often forget about and... Um, because we think about things like Latelolco, is that there was a great deal of low-intensity conflict in the countryside. In the 1960s, the Mexican hippies, called Hippie Tecas, created a multidisciplinary movement called La Onda, the Wave. And in accordance with their hippie values, they advocated for change against the PRI, the PRI. After a number of government episodes of banning music and musicals and events throughout Mexico, as well as the two major sporting events in which the PRI, the PRI, hosted events to show their modern image or, you know, modern way in which they wanted to show the world who they were, uh, the 1970 FIFA World Cup and the 1968 Summer Olympics. At these two uh, major events, Mexico aimed to show the world that they had become a a modern political power, and at the same time they were also engaging in violent repression of political youth movements such as the Tlatelolco Massacre and the Alconazo, which in turn led to the Dirty Wars because they were held in multiple places of the early 1970s. So in response, the Mexican hippies aimed to throw an event in order to challenge the PRI and as well to bring together a number of different groups such as the hippies, the hipitecas that had been uniting all over the world uh, around a counterculture theme, and this event in Mexico was the Festival Rock y Ruedas de Avándaro, and it was held on September 11th and 12th, 1971. The concert had been created as a kind of response to the American Woodstock, and it's this point that kind of reminds you that Mexico was under a dictatorship, right? If they're able to ban things like concerts, label recordings, and broadcasts, right? But it was in this period that rock music really went underground from the late 1970s to late 1980s. And it wasn't until the censorship began to thaw that rock and Espanol really began to engage in dialogue between Mexico and the other countries that had been dealing with military dictatorships as well. So uh, a big relationship was developed between Mexico, Argentina, and Spain, and they developed this kind of rock and rock in your language, right? Campaign in which the RCA record label released singles from the three countries and packaged them together in cassettes in the 1980s. Now, a full-fledged rock movement began in 1985 in Mexico City with the creation of of, um, of a venue called Rocotiplan, Um as well as a cult radio station called Rock 101, uh, and even to the rise in music videos and concerts on MTV. In Mexico, we're talking about a, a number of bands that really uh, flowered in this era, and anywhere we from um, La Maldita Vecindad, uh, Cuba, Santa Sabina, Las Victimas del Doctor Cerebro, Maná, uh, even Café um, uh, and and many more. And now these bands are important because they really became this way for the young people to deal with a democratic transition that was happening. It became kind of this count the soundtrack of the generation that was living through the ends of the PRI or the PRI and the beginnings of of a new democratic shift right uh that was happening in this period and the the way in which they were writing the music but also like not only the lyrics here but also the type of music so in many ways these bands La Lujita right in addition I'm giving you a bunch of names here uh they drew on a lot of Mexican traditional music and incorporated into rock music and in this way created a new kind of language for young people to speak that spoke to their own history but also um, prioritized indigeneity into their into the music and also spoke about the frustrations they had with their society. Mm In Chile, Salvador Allende's Socialist Party had uh, the the music of a uh, nueva canción was a significant, uh, put put a significant political role in this in this um, in the party and in the government that ensued, uh, which was a type of folk music that uh, had developed as a way to criticize the way in which, like, the poor and the working class and the and Indigenous people were treated. And and also to kind of revive Indigenous traditions, right? So people like Violeta Parra and Victor Hara and uh, Quilapayun and um, Inti Illimani and a number of other bands, uh, they, you know, came from this Nueva Cancion tradition and... They supported popular socialism uh, with and its rise under Salvador Allende. Uh, and they even brought indigenous instruments and rhythms into this attempt to recover a number of indigenous cultures. It was also a way of rejecting American popular culture um, and viewing American culture as much more imperialistic. And so in that way, they were kind of developing their own music when things like rock music were, were everywhere, right? So, this, so that rock music was, in certain spaces in Latin America, associated more with imperialism. Uh, this Nueva Cancion music in Chile was also viewed as a challenge to the Latin American elites who dismissed indigenous culture and were fans of, of uh, like, world music and pop music and things like that. Indigenous, these indigenous um, traditions that they developed uh, in Nueva Cancion uh, were, was um, overthrown when the military coup in Chile on September 11th, 1973, in which the ousting of Salvador Allende's government and those who sympathized with it, when the military declared war on Nueva Cancion, right? Now, this is significant because music is such a part of people's psychological and emotional balance, right? Think about how much music can be a way for people to bond together and share their experience and talk to each other. Um, But it also, and I don't want to get into this too much, but it also became a way for the military dictatorship to torture people, the use of certain types of, of music. So music is a significant part of these military dictatorships and the coups that they threw and um, think about how the fact that there were oftentimes music became a critical point, like bone of contention, right? So think about how important it was to them. During the coup, the military replaced television radio programming in Chile with the Nazi marching music. Uh, and the musician Victor Hara was assassinated five days after the military coup in a prison camp that the military established in Chile's main stadium, uh, the Estadio Chile. Now two of the most famous Nueva Cancion bands happened to be touring outside of Chile at the time of the coup, Quilapayun and Inti Limani, and they actually ended up remaining in exile for years. um, And from the start of the military dictatorship, Nueva Cancion was outlawed in Chile. And while musicians did try to continue to play their music, either be underground or through, um, because they were in exile, uh, they weren't largely able to play the music until the aftermath of the coup and their music, they were doing it in the aftermath of the coup. And because they were in exile, many of them, their music took on meaning. It was a form of protest for the exiles uh, and a way to talk about the new military dictatorship so many in many ways the Nueva Cancion became a way for people in exile right to remember what had happened because the music was basically silenced during the dictatorship under Pinochet uh, and it only began to re-emerge after 1975 when uh, people used coded expressions of solidarity in their music, like we saw in Argentina, uh, a new musical f- genre developed in Chile called Canto Nuevo. Uh, like Nueva Cancion, it incorporated the use of um, folkloric music and indigenous music, but Canto Nuevo uh, also used electric instruments like guitars and keyboards and drum kits like we see in rocker Español. Uh, and it was influenced as well by Nueva Trova from Cuba, and it's at this point that Rock en Español or Canto Nuevo um, really start to flourish in Chile uh, in the in the, the death throes of the military um, dictatorship uh, in the 1980s. And so um, I want to leave it at that for this podcast and we'll get to talking about the specific cases um, of rock music and the lyrics and what they're talking about in the next one. Thank you.
0: Gracias a la profesora Sosa Ridel for her very insightful contributions today. Well, in this episode, we heard a version of Julieta Venegas, Eres Para Mi, performed by the students of Miramonte Music Program, based in the Miramonte Elementary School in South Los Angeles. From Argentina, we heard Enanitos Verdes and the 1987 version of El Estraño del Pelo Largo, which was originally composed by la banda La Joven Guardia in 1968. In addition, we listened to Abandaro by Mexico's Tinta Blanca. From Chile, we heard Lamento del Indio by Inti Ilmani and Organizando by Sol y Lluvia. This has been the discursive power of rock in Español and the desire for democracy or El rock en Español y el Deseo Democrático. I am Professor Jorge Leal, historian at UC Riverside. This podcast features the collaboration of José Vergara, director of Miramonte Music Program, and the students who are part of the Miramonte Modern Band. We're very thankful for the support of the University of California Humanities Research Institute. This project is also supported in part by the University of California Office of the President, MRPI Funding, m M21- 21 PR 3286. Until next time, hasta la próxima.